0: You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast.
1: What exactly makes Beyonce the Queen Bee? How do we feel about Ariana Grande's use of rap vernacular? And most importantly, what's better? Chamomile or spice chai? We ponder all of this and more on Hot Tea Hot Takes, now a part of the Rock Candy Podcast Network. Our show is just two friends drinking tea and discussing music, culture, politics, and anything else that comes to mind. We cover everything from Mozart to Megan Thee Stallion. New uploads are posted weekly. Look for it wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you soon. Bye!
2: This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. In this episode, I speak with transhumanist author Peter Clark. Peter Clark is the author of the comic novels, Politicians Are Superheroes and The Singularity Survival Guide. His short fiction has appeared in over 50 literary journals and his nonfiction has appeared in publications, including Quillette, Aereo Magazine, The Humanist and Arc Digital. He is also the founding editor of Jokes Literary Review. So in this conversation, we talk about his admiration for Satanism as a scientific religion. While he does not personally consider himself a Satanist, He is an ally to Satanism. He admires Satanism from the outside. We also discuss Satanism and transhumanism and how those two are excellent bedfellows. Along the way, we also discuss artificial intelligence, panpsychism, the Bible, and so much more. This conversation was fascinating and I really, really hope you enjoy it. But before we get to that, I have to thank my patrons. As always, my patrons are my personal lords and saviors. I truly could not do this without them. They are ensuring the long life of my work. So for this week, I have to thank Will and Stephen. Thank you so much. It means the whole world to me. If you want to join their number, just go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a few dollars every month, you get extra content each week. And it really does ensure the long life Of this show i put a lot of work and energy into my articles into my podcast and now i'm doing more online speaking engagements that's a lot of work and i want to keep it all free but in order for it to be free to the general public i need your help so you can follow the link in the show notes or you can just go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. I always have to thank my amazing Discord server as well. Every single day there is new conversation going on there. Most of the discussion about my work takes place on my Discord server. There is a link in the show notes. I always welcome you to join their company. I also have to thank my sponsor, the They are a streaming platform by and for the satanic and satanic adjacent communities. It is full of all kinds of stuff like rituals, feature length films, documentaries, live streams, movie nights, all kinds of stuff is featured on the satanic temple.tv and you can get one month free by using my promo code sacred all caps, no space at checkout. Finally, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show wherever you listen. That tells our digital overlords that this show is worth sharing to others. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. When you do, I will read it on the show as thanks. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to bring you my conversation with Peter Clark. Peter Clark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I encountered your work on Twitter. You were kind enough to mention me and several other Satanists in an article or not in, but you mentioned us. You added us uh, to kind of let us know that you wrote this fantastic article on uh, the narrative of Satan. And uh, also you've written some amazing stuff about transhumanism and Satanism and you know we can get into all of that very soon but i w- wanted to ask you what drew you to satanism in the first place what got you interested in this subject of satanism and kind of how it how there is kind of a Venn diagram between it and transhumanism
1: right so probably like a lot of people i grew up um in a fairly conservative christian household and the idea of satan it has this mystique that whether you're like full on the Jesus narrative or not, the mystique of Satan, when you're somehow in the Christian world, it's just so, it's just so fascinating and so juicy. And so, I mean, I lived, I woke up having nightmares about uh, getting the mark of the beast, you know, the whole 666. Six, six, Same. Six, uh, Right? Yes. So the the whole world of Satanism in in your childhood when it's like the the most evil thing imaginable that can like curse you to hell for eternity, all of these things, um, they really play upon the the mind of a child. And I, you know, started kind of falling out with the whole Christian thing when I was around 18, Um, started calling myself an atheist proper probably when I was around um, 25-ish and uh, I, I never like sought out anything as a replacement to Christianity. I still, you know, I don't think that there's any void in my soul. This, this like seeking any replacement for that. But um, at the same time, like all that symbology, it it, it lingers in inside of you, you know. It, and it is kind of like a rich part of our culture. And I think that so whenever like a Satanism type thing happens in a movie or a book or or whatever, like it, it, there's a there's a draw there, right? And, um, I mean, I, I don't have like a moment necessarily, but I do remember when I watched that movie, uh, God, I'm, I'm, blanking on it, but, um, about the satanic temple. Oh, speak um, of the
2: devil. And I did an interview, I believe it was last year, no, two years ago now with Penny Lane right. uh, about that movie. It is fantastic. Everyone needs to go watch it. It is a great primer to the satanic temple.
1: Oh, it was so good. And so like during when I was watching that, when they went through their seven tenants, I was like, I'm on board with all of these. I don't know what this is exactly, but but count count me in. I'm, yes. I'm fully on board. And so being able to like maintain some of that that rich symbology that is like just ingrained in our culture and in like Western art and, and everything. Um, I think is is really fascinating and there still is a lot of richness there to, you know, kind of participate in. I still don't call myself a Satanist, but I I do love um incorporating that into my writing, into my thought process, when, when you're talking about like, you know, I'm, I'm pro science. And is there any some symbology behind that rather than just like, Oh, you know, Isaac Newton or, or whatever, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is there like an artistic or, or, you know, Jungian way to appreciate that that's not just naming off famous scientists. So that kind of mm. drew me, I guess, to uh, this, this world of enjoying the, Satanism, you know? Uh, And it does link up to a lot of my other interests. I am quite a bit more into the world of transhumanism than I am into the world of Satanism necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a natural thing that I was able to start to combine the two in my mind and You've probably noticed this, but there is a fairly substantial movement um, among Christians, kind of like like hip Christians who want to lash on to the transhumanist movement. So there's like, you know, uh dot and there's there's a lot of these yeah, people. Yeah. Um I've debated I, I thought uh, about
2: I thought about reaching out to them for an interview, actually. Um, okay, because yeah. just because like whenever I see something like that, I'm like, that sounds like an interesting conversation for a podcast. <laughs>
1: Totally. And I mean, I, I've, I've debated a couple of Christians on this point, specifically uh, Fazrana. Um, And I mean, these things like they're, they're really married to a lot of concepts that are completely opposed to transhumanism. I think like just the idea that we're made in the image of God. Right. Mm. Uh, it just is fundamentally opposed to the idea that let's, let's, play with the body, let's consider it more of a meat suit than, than a sacred vessel, these these sorts of things. Hmm. And so I kind of like set out to de- you know debunk the idea that you can coherently be a Christian transhumanist. In my process of doing that, I started writing about how like Satan, Satanist transhumanism makes way more sense uh, kind of just to, to like poke poke at the the Christian transhumanists, but at the same time, I ended up convincing myself that that actually is legitimate along the way of of writing about this.
2: That that satanic transhumanism is legitimate, or that Christian transhumanism is legitimate.
1: That uh, satanic transhumanism is legitimate, and that mm. it it serves as like a just that being the case. Is, is a reason why Christian transhumanism again is, is kind of kind of a ridiculous thing I, I would say definitely happy to talk more about that specifically. yeah
2: that would, that's that's really really interesting so just to uh, lay down some terms here and or, or to define some terms here first because I you know you use the word atheist. To describe yourself, I still find that there are just so many people who are unclear of what people mean when they say the word atheist. So, what does atheism mean to you?
1: Right. So, I mean, there there are people who are quote strong atheists. They they call themselves where they believe that there is no God, there never will be. And there's almost an element of faith there that um even if there were a God, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna believe it. Um I'm more on like the the weak atheist side where mm. um if there's some evidence for some like higher power, I mean I'm I'm all in. Like why Same. not? That sounds fine. You know?
2: Yeah I you know I I totally relate to that and honestly, I feel like I've almost gotten more shit for calling myself an atheist or a non-theist than I have for calling myself a Satanist, because at least Christians have, like, a deranged place of Satanism in their worldview. They don't, and, and by Christian I mean theistic Christians, non-theistic Christians do exist, you know, or and, you know, mo- most conservative theistic Christians, it's like they have a place for Satanism in their worldview, but they don't have a place for Satanist, or or they don't have a place for atheist. I mean, right, and right. Um, so I almost get more shit for that, <laughs> which is so bizarre to me. But yeah, it's like I'm I'm totally open to to a higher power or to God. I just want sufficient evidence, right? It, that's really all right. it comes down to. Um, so I'm right there with you on that. And then define transhumanism. Uh,
1: transhumanism is basically the idea that we are trying to through science, augment the body, improve the body, um, maybe merge with machines, maybe just like overcome biological death. There are a lot of projects that are kind of fall under the umbrella of transhumanism. Um, Interestingly, the people who are doing the most for the movement, have no association with the movement. It's mm. it's people like Elon Musk doing Neuralink, and it's uh, people like George Church doing um, genetic engineering. Um, and mm. I don't think that they're going to be calling themselves transhumanists. It, so the the movement itself is it's kind of just science, you know, at a very basic level. But um, philosophically, it it does. Become interesting when you start looking at uh where it came from as as a narrative. And the fact that like there there is there is some some like interesting elements of of belief to it. Um what one is that we we aren't a sacred vessel. We are just a kind of a meat suit that can be tinkered with. There, mm. There's a little bit of an element of of just like naturalism, natural philosophy there. Uh, but also like it's interesting to explore. The roots of it, and I have done this a little bit, where it kind of goes back to Zoroaster, predating Christianity. Um, in the uh, the Judeo Christian world, uh, there is the idea that we were created perfectly by God. So is was our world. And so we can't fundamentally change anything about ourselves or the world. Uh, Zoroaster thought that God gave us the ability to manipulate our bodies, manipulate the world, um, these sorts of things. And so transhumanism just kind of, kind of takes off from there. And there are threads throughout history of like huh. you know, Prometheus is another just like point there. Also people like, uh, uh, Jack Parsons, the the rocketeer, um, he he was kind of like a, a an early ish transhumanist in in America, where he was trying to you know onboard the live forever type of mentality.
2: It's fascinating, and yeah, you you have this opening sentence in your article on satanic transhumanism which i will be linking in the show notes by the way for people who are interested and your article starts transhumanism can't escape the fact that it has religious undertones the uh, and then you go on the core of the movement involves a desire to overcome death which inevitably aligns with religious worldviews so no one should be too shocked that religious organizations are starting to become attracted to transhumanism uh so it's like from the get-go there's this really interesting tension within transhumanism where it it seems like and, and then you go on to say that you know secular the the more secular scientifically minded transhumanists which I assume is all of them personally I don't I haven't met them but a lot of them seem to resist that in, uh in your perspective and how there's kind of this tension from the get-go of religion and science um talk some about that tension and and how does satanism come into that for you
1: so kind of the, kind of the yeah there there, there is just a lot of tension here and it is a little bit hard to talk about because there is some mind reading going on with uh what do what does the average transhumanist believe this this sort of a thing but um I, I think that it's very telling that a lot of Christians have latched onto transhumanism, and it is because of this element that it's it's an overcoming death thing, and it can be mapped onto the Jesus Christ thing. Mm-hmm. And so, just a, a little sidebar here, but it, it all ties in. Um, there's this guy named Frank J. Tipler who is a physicist, I think at the University of uh, Houston or something like this. And he has taken the, the whole Jesus narrative and completely mapped it onto the idea of the singularity that through technology, we will create heaven. Um, we will all, you know, our, our future human selves will uh, repopulate the world with all human souls through technology. And that will be the singularity, which he calls the omega point when we all become God, all matter becomes sentient, this yeah. sort of thing. So, so there's definitely a narrative there. Um, but it like even that, even though he tries to root that in physics and in science, it is it's very like woo-woo-e. And mm. it it's rooted in, you know, the idea that Jesus was resurrected and, and you know, kind, kind of kind of silly things. So that's that that's Christians trying to grapple with this idea of us overcoming eternal life. Um the atheists, the naturalists also like, we're all kind of basically doing the same thing. If you have any interest in uh, maintaining a healthy body um, you're, you're kind of like on board with this project that you want to live for as long as you can. Um, and especially when we're talking about um, genetic modification so that we can maybe overcome natural, the natural aging process, there's a movement to call aging a disease. Um, that's that's kind of kind of a, a very, very similar project. Hmm. And but like you don't you don't really want to uh as a naturalist, you don't want to have any any symbology thrown in there because it's it is just so it's 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 so woo-woo. It's you know it's it's so religious-y and it has it comes with all this baggage. The one thing that has some of this symbology that is that's rich and has, has cultural, uh you know, richness to it is is Satanism because it is like an atheist perspective. It's very pro science. It's pro naturalism. Naturalism is is all that we have, but uh, it has some um, symbology to it that that maps onto transhumanism that is doesn't have any of the religious baggage.
2: Yes, and you know, I I've always heard from religious people. And I always heard this as I journeyed through the the Christian world from like ultra conservative Christian to then super progressive Christian, where I'm, my faith eventually died in in twenty seventeen. That faith, that religion and science that there was no inherent contradiction, and it's like there was always this battle, or there was this always this struggle within Christianity to reconcile faith and science. And, um, you know, I've, I did an interview with Paul Wallace, for example, who's a progressive Christian astrophysicist, and just listening to him try to reconcile that was super interesting to me. I feel like the satanic temple and kind of what you're talking about with transhumanism is the actual reconciliation or the actual marriage of religion and science. You know, in, in Satanism we have the, or in the Satanic temple, we have the fifth tenet. Um, we should always conform our beliefs to the best scientific evidence while also upholding a symbol of, a, a kind of mystical religious symbol, but fully understanding its place, fully understanding that this is a guiding narrative that it is that for us it is real but not true. And um, so I kind of see I, I kind of see what you're talking about as the resolution that Christians have looked for for so long. Does that make sense?
1: hundred percent. Because if you if you go back to the Genesis story, um, Satan is a foil to bullshit. That's 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 what he does. He he calls bullshit on the idea that uh, you know everything that God says is kind of a lie. Hmm. Um, and Satan just 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 calls bullshit on that and says like no you you can you can question authority and yes you can find knowledge for yourself and um, yes you can determine your own future your future isn't determined by like some some god deity thing and uh, injecting Satanism into transhumanism is equally a foil for. Um, not allowing any dogmatism any religious you know nonsense into the transhumanist movement too because it 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 makes everything so that the uh the end goal is not about pleasing some higher power the end goal is about just kind of figuring out how the natural world works for ourselves and that that to me is the the uh, satanist agenda
2: yeah definitely you you have this line in your article about uh satan as a literary figure and how over time it's like these villains suddenly become heroes uh when we apply our modern sensibilities to them and So you wrote, Lucifer's role is to call bullshit on the tyrant and to give Adam and Eve the knowledge they need to flourish in the real world. Where God says, have faith in me alone and don't ever question what I tell you, Lucifer responds, in essence, no, you should always question the tyrant. Don't believe any authority figure just because they tell you to believe them. Do your own research and figure out what's true on your own. That is a... Fantastic encapsulation of the satanic ethos of um, of being kind of a, a, a radical independent thinker and to not yield to the tyrant. So talk talk some about that process of how, you know, literary figures that were once villains become heroes how, and how Satan encapsulates that for you.
1: So I actually am primarily a fiction writer. <clears throat> I spent most of my time writing fiction. So th- this to me is, is almost one of my most interesting articles in, in the Satanism world, because I think yeah. of Satan as a literary figure primarily. Absolutely. Because he is, right? Um, and I, I was trying to wrap my mind around this idea that, so Satan like was the villain and now he's now he's like, very much arguably the good guy. It's it's hard just by modern, just if, if you come with, with no religious baggage, you just read this story and you apply modern sensibilities, he's kind of the good guy. He's he, you know, is, is anti-tyrant, right? And any of the heroes that we see in our daily lives are teachers and scientists and and political figures who aren't tyrants. The, these are the heroes and the 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 tyrants of school schoolyard bullies, on and on. That's the God figure in in this story. Um But when I started to kind of explore this and map out this this essay about this topic, I found that there are very few literary figures who did the bad guy to good guy thing. It's it's really common for a a hero, um, in hindsight, to actually be the villain. And in the article, I give a couple of examples of uh, like John Wayne in in the characters he plays in a lot of his old cowboy movies. Um, He's like this, you know very agro, um, the, the, the white man coming in to like uh, be, you know, misogynistic and also like very, you know, not nice to uh, Native Americans to put it, you know, you know, vaguely. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, you watch a lot of these movies, he, he's kind of like the bad guy, you know, even though like he's portrayed as good, he's kind of the bad guy. And uh, this this is a pretty common theme throughout history, throughout literature. <clears throat> um, Columbus is another good example. He's, he's not, um, you know, uh, he's, he's a historical figure, but he ends up in, in literature a lot of times too. Same with like anyone involved in the Crusades. They thought that they were the good guys, right? They thought that they were on the side of God. Tur- turns out they were just like in the, in the Crusades, they were just, you know, murdering a lot of Muslim folks who didn't, you know, ask for, you know, that sort of treatment. Uh, but, you know, this is how I phrase in the article, any, any author who is um, crafting a good narrative, they are going to put a lot of qualities on the uh, villain that's going to make it really challenging for them to actually make a true, do a true 180 and become... The good guy in the story and so like I, I tried to find other examples um and Medusa is is an example um, of someone who was a, kind of the villain who became the good guy over over time mm. but Lucifer really stands out as truly the the one fictional character who did a complete 180 by modern sensibilities just reading the story as modern people uh and that that to me is, is fascinating because he really is a fairly unique character
2: yeah and you know I encountered this myself where as a christian i would say my core religious practice was just you know every morning reading the bible and i and i did that for years Mm -hmm. and it's like over time the character of god started to transform and the character of satan started to transform and i remember it specifically when i was um I I was reading the Book of judges. I was working through the Old Testament and just horror story after horror story after horror story, of these atrocities that either God himself would commit or that people in His name would commit. And it and it it started to dawn on me like, maybe god's the bad guy (laughs) like maybe maybe he isn't the hero of this story maybe he is maybe he's actually in the old testament like the manifestation of all of the worst human impulses of xenophobia and genocide and hatred and homophobia and and sexism and just like maybe he's just the personification of all of the worst impulses of human nature. And how is it that I ever believed that this character was good? Like, how was it that I was ever brainwashed into believing that a God that would send people he didn't like to eternal torment, to, you know, cosmic gas chambers for all time, how could I have ever believed that that was the good guy?
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the thing that made me kind of ultimately realized that, that I was no longer a Christian was just that the evidence kind of from, from the first word to the last word, is just, just very clearly written by humans.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And uh, like, I I started reading um, Bart Ehrman and he goes into a lot of specific passages in the new Testament about how, uh, like where a passage came from and how it was clearly written by scribes. Excuse me. Uh, So, so like, you know, the story of uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, and um, he says, you know, who he who has not sinned cast a first stone. It uh, turns out that that particular passage, which was my favorite passage in the whole Bible, I, I said it, was, it was so like like fantastic and brilliant. Yeah. Turns out that was written by a scribe, um, 400 years after these manuscripts <laughs> yes. appeared. Yes. And the second you start like that's just one example, but I mean, the second you start like really digging into the specifics of where where this book came from, one, it's not the it's simply not the most brilliant book in the world. There are better books in the world. Just. Terms of literature Correct. and like history and uh, name name a thing name a field that there there are better better books out there and it's it's just like clearly written by people you know if, if yes. there were a god he would have done better he would have at the the burning bush with Moses the god God would have said oh here's some basic info on germ theory wash your hands so <laughs> yeah. you can save hundreds of millions of lives yeah you know don't what I mean? like, don't defecate near open right. water.
2: Et cetera, et cetera. Yes. no, I I'm totally with you on that. and um, you know my my and I still have conversations with Christians all the time on this show because I I just refuse to kind of cut ties with that world and to end dialogue and conversation with that world. Um, but you know, I, I think the Bible is worth reading because it's such a huge, part of our culture. I think it's really important to read and understand and understand the ways in which it informs our culture. And when we do that, we learn that there is a lot of like crazy bullshit in it and, and truly horrific stuff. And it, it, it was really this process of the Bible. It felt like having to wake up in the morning and just read the most atrocious horror story imaginable like it was it was like you know when I would do my morning devotions it was like waking up and girding myself (laughs) and being like okay I'm going to read about death and slaughter and rape and murder and and injustice and so and so forth and I was just like I can't do this anymore and that that was really the turning point at which I started to re-examine the figure of satan Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins has this fantastic quote uh, that really encapsulates my uh, what I came to see the God of the Old Testament as. Hold on. Let me let me pull it up. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. (laughs) It's just...
1: That is that is very good. And you know that for
2: <laughs> for all of Richard Dawkins's flaws of which there are many, I have to give it to him, that is a fantastic quote. Um so talk some about your your interest in transhumanism. What sparked your interest in that to begin with?
1: So, um I mean, I, I think that it goes back a little bit to just what my day job was back in the day, uh, about, about five or so years ago, um, I was an editor at, uh, findlaw.com and we, we, uh, wrote a lot about technology, most of it related to the law, but, <clears throat> um, kind of, kind of just like, you know, technology, um, in general and just advancements in technology. And, uh, that actually that just kind of like introduced me to what, what was happening. Um, sorry, one second. Got my, my, my throat is uh, losing it here. But uh, introduced me to just like, you know, what was trendy in the old Silicon Valley world. And uh, it's, you know... It gets more and more interesting once you start uh, looking into like the the weird characters that exist in the valley, and so like you know Zoltan Ispán is is one of them, and he's this guy who ran for the uh, the Transhumanist Party, or I guess he founded the Transhumanist Party, and like ran for president on that platform. And um, I kind of like I followed him a little bit, got to know him, got to know a couple of the characters in that movement, um, friends with like Rachel Haywire, who also ran for the, the Transhumanist Party president. And it's just full of a lot of fun people. It's just a lot of a lot of weirdos, a lot of lot of wackadoos. And I I, <laughs> I am the, here uh,
2: for we- I'm here for the weirdos for right? sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Me, totally museum. <laughs> I uh,
1: I ended up going to a couple of years ago, I went to the uh like Biohack the Planet conference that was over in Oakland. And uh just I mean, just just I get a kick out of all those people, like uh, Josiah Zayner um is a guy at uh like uh the Odin and he's like you know, the biohacker guide that you can buy a CRISPR kit from him for like a hundred bucks and you can do CRISPR in your garage, this sort of thing. Um, so I guess this is, it's partly me just um, exploring that world for a lot of the, the interesting uh, characters out there. But I've also like written about it quite a bit. And I wrote this book called The Singularity Survival Guide, which is kind of a goofy satirical take on how do we how do we survive when robots become smarter than humans and uh that i mean there that's just kind of an example of how that when you get into the transhumanist world there's there's just a, a lot of fun things to uh, to think about and to to write about
2: so i guess my question has always been how how reachable is transhumanism? Like how far into the future are we looking? Are we looking like a thousand years into the future or are we thinking like tomorrow? What what's the time scale? What's what's actually feasible or possible in in terms of attaining, I guess, the human augmentation, transhumanist goal?
1: Well, um, The most ambitious goals that that I can tell kind of come down to uh, whatever is happening with the longevity researchers. I mean, there's a lot of people like Max Moore at Alcor trying to freeze the human brain so that we can one day be reanimated you know there, there's a lot of projects like that but in terms of um the, the the hardest problem on the table is i think trying to just reverse the aging process and make it so that we don't get cancer a, kind of a lot of these a lot of these things that um anyone who probably goes into biology or medicine right now they're going to be um These problems are going to be on the table for them. I recently went to a talk by um, Aubrey de Grey, who's doing a lot of research into life extension. Hmm. And uh, he kind of like laid out very specifically, um, I think he has like a list of eight or 15 problems that have to be solved to really make any actual progress in longevity. And he says pretty bluntly that solving any one of these problems, it just mostly comes down to money. It comes Mm -hmm. down to just being able to throw a couple billion dollars at any one of these problems because we're making incremental progress, but it's just happening very slowly. Um, This is kind of why I really like some people like Zoltan Ispan who are bringing a political element to the transhumanist conversation because once you have any sort of political power, you can actually start throwing millions or billions of dollars at a project like this. And so Zoltan has this idea of getting away from the military industrial complex, putting that money into a science industrial complex. And he kind of, I mean, he talks very convincingly about how if you just like take that money and throw it at, at, at cancer and other problems that we all have to deal with, every single one of us, that is just way better use of your money, bang for your buck, that will actually improve the lives of humans mm. rather than fighting, you know, foreign wars and all the rest of it.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I have to ask this as a good lefty is I I hear, you know, I'm a I, I follow Jacobin and and, mm-hmm. you know, I I stay on top of the lefty beat, the, the socialist beat. And there's a lot of anxiety in a lot of leftist spaces about this conversation and about it, it creating another economic case system where the super powerful are able to, the super wealthy and the super powerful are able to, um, augment themselves and extend their lives and so on and so forth and, and invest power to create more power. Whereas uh, the underclasses, the proletariat, et cetera, would not have access to that and it would create a widening gap between the classes. What do you think of that critique?
1: You know, I have a little bit of a cynical perspective on this. You may appreciate this, may, maybe not. And and I will just kind of say as a subtext that uh, I think that I'm probably politically aligned with you. It sounds like, and a lot of these characters, like Zoltan, um, he's like very libertarian, like like a little bit too much for me. And and um, mm-hmm. you know, ran as a Republican against Trump, which I actually appreciate. I, I enjoyed that. But um, yeah, so I don't necessarily politically align with with. the the average Joe in this crowd per se, but Hmm. to answer your question specifically um, and this is my cynical take, uh, I think it's inevitable. I think it will happen that the rich and powerful will definitely 100% take advantage of all these, these, you know, advancements first. I think there's nothing we can do about it. And I think that like complaining about it is literally just a a waste of breath. Um, But I think that like, if, if, um, any of this technology is scalable and it all should be every single piece of, of, uh, transhumanist, you know, adjacent technology, it will be scalable. The expensive one will be the first one. Okay. And then once, once you have the, uh, the, the thing in the DNA lab that makes it so that you don't get cancer, it's, you know, uh, assuming that, that, is just a matter of recreating that thing. At a certain point, um, a drug company will want to make money off of that. The more people they sell it to, the more money they, they make. This just comes down to basic economics. And hopefully we have some political leaders that that somewhat align with, with the common folks, not just like their, their big money interests. You know, this 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 is a conversation that goes back in time. But um kind of kind of far-reachingly. I, this is also sounds a little cynical, but I think it's also just kind of true and worth throwing out there. Uh, I don't think any of these technologies are necessarily going to make people happier on the, in their day to day lives. Yeah. I think it will be great when we have these technologies and the, the latest gadget, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, anytime you do any sort of looking into what makes people happy, it's having a strong friend group and have, having strong family ties and a lot of these technologies especially when they come in in their infancy they make people less happy they take mm. people away from their friends and their family so i think that you know if if you don't get the latest google glasses you know version <laughs> you know that probably is is for your benefit is probably to not to your detriment yeah. I, I mean, who who knows? It's It depends on the technology for sure, but that's kind of my cynical take.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm totally on board with that. Like, you know, getting the first Apple implant, which I would have to pay internal organs for, right. Um, would not make me a happier person. Do you feel like there's sometimes a, a sort of utopianism surrounding conversations like this. Like, this technology will make us happier. I, I see the same thing around social media. It's like, this thing will make us more connected. This thing will make us happier. It will make us better human beings. And I guess we could go back and forth on whether that's true or not but to me the evidence is pretty clear that that is not the case right and, and so mm-hmm. is there often like a utopian expectation with these technologies that this will be the thing that that finally improves our life to the point that we will be happy
1: so i think at a very fundamental basic level it is utopian and that's good and uh, so I'll, I'll try yes to, I'll we, try we, are to, pro,
2: we are pro we are actually i am pro utopia i think utopias are good because they give us something to aspire to yeah
1: yes it's so 100 percent exactly i actually recently wrote an article about this um about human purpose the, the idea of human purpose and um psychologists have drilled down that the idea of human purpose basically comes down to just having goals to work towards. Mm. And across societies and across time, humans like to tell stories and we like to build things. And we, when we get um, social credit, when we, you know from our peer group for the things that we build and for the the stories that we tell, um, that fulfills our sense of purpose. And this is like deeply ingrained in us. And at this point, we've done everything. Like we we have we have done pottery. We we have done basic coding. We have done mountain climbing. We we've done all the things, and we're we're building off of everything that we've done in the past. And being able to have goals and to impress our peer group with what we what we create um, is still just as much a part of who we are as it was back in the Stone Age, you know, mm-hmm. when we were building huts and still had that same sense of purpose that we got out of that work. So having ambitious goals is only going to make sure that we maintain a strong sense of human purpose going forward into the future. And I'm so all about that. I think that um, another, just a little bit of a tangent to that point is that I think that uh, America as a country, um, we have come together recently and we've always come together historically on like having an enemy and hating other people. Right now we hate each other and that's kind of our national project is just like the left versus the right. I think we need to have a positive vision that can bring people together. Something like going to the moon, like we did back in the day. Mm. Something that like people on both sides of the political spectrum can be stoked about and to feel pride in. And uh, a lot of the transhumanist type, top type, you know, endeavors, projects. Could could fulfill that?
2: That's really interesting. it It's like uh, it it's like the Watch, you know, the comic, the Watchmen, and mm-hmm. how, you know, they they uh, I forget the superhero's name who basically invented an alien invasion to unite humanity. Yeah, and and it's like a, a common cause, a common goal, something to work forward to. But you're you're casting it in a more positive light. Like, what is something? What is a positive project that humanity can work on together? Yeah, that's for me. That's climate change. Like overcoming climate change is the thing yeah. that I that I wish we could all just get on board with. But it's become so you know right left politicized that that's probably not going to happen anytime soon.
1: Yeah, that is too bad.
2: How does how does AI play into... So you, you talked about the research into reversing the process of death. How does AI play into the conversation surrounding transhumanism?
1: Well, so this is a little bit of a critique of transhumanism in that it is just... Uh, my friend Rachel Haywire has described transhumanism as just a, a cult of uh, health, and just like maintaining, she describes it better than that, but just it's, it is very like health focused. I think that there should be slightly more emphasis on um, the AI world because um, I do think that AI could definitely be an existential threat to humanity.
2: Hmm. And
1: I, I don't think that it doesn't matter if we cure cancer, if, uh, you know, you know just, just cue any of the scenarios in Black Mirror come to life. Right mm. there, there are so many ways that technology could go wrong. One, one thing that that worries me the most is how um, our military is going a little bit—not just our military, but militaries around the world—are going a little bit crazy with with AI uh, research. And mm. I mean that—that's that's just worrisome when when we have like militaries using AI for destructive purposes. So, um, in in terms of like incorporating artificial intelligence in those conversations in the transhumanist world. I think that it it really should be um, trying to move forward the project that I know Elon Musk and Bill Gates and these people talk about, of trying to make safeguards so that AI doesn't destroy us. I think that that, that's a really legitimate Mm -hmm. project that should be part of the, the daily conversations among the transhumanist crowd.
2: Just because I'm so ignorant about this, I mean, I've I've listened to Sam Harris lose his goddamn mind over over AI for years now. But what are what are the specifics? Like, what are the way? Why is AI a? Why is AI an existential threat?
1: So I really like the way that. Uh, um, um blinking on his name, the, the guy at Oxford.
2: Bostrom. Uh, Nick Bostrom.
1: Bo- Nick Bostrom. I yeah. like the way that he articulates this. And that so this is just a lot makes a lot of sense to me that anytime we ever invent anything. Um, whether it's a, a cure for for cancer, which those you know, or you know, a, a cure for polio that right now labs now have polio that they could spread throughout the world if they wanted to. That that's a technology. That's a piece of technology. The, the cure for polio, right? But now that has the opposite effect of that we could destroy, you know, kill a lot of people with that mm. same technology. Whenever we invent anything, not anything, but I mean many things. Whenever whenever we invent a new piece of technology. Uh, Bostrom describes it as we're, we're reaching into an urn and we're pulling out a ball. It, it could be, uh, usually it's like a gray ball. It's something that's benefit beneficial and it might have some kind of like negative consequences to it. Um, sometimes we pull out a white ball, it's, it's only beneficial. This is hard to imagine, but like we invented pencils, right? And the, there's not much downside to a pencil. But there, inside this urn, there are balls that are black. And we don't know if they're going to be gray, white, or black until we pull it out mm. and a black ball will kill us. And we don't mm. know what it will do. And so uh, the perfect example of this is when we created the atomic bomb, there were legitimate physicists who knew what they were talking about, who thought that it might like suck out all the oxygen of the planet and we would all die. Or it was some scenario like that, that they had kind of like mapped out with numbers and it was almost just a, like a luck of the draw that the the physics of the atmosphere weren't such that that happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and so when, when it, we don't know. we simply do not know what we're what we're messing with when we're trying to create and artificial intelligence when we don't even know what our own consciousness is. We don't, we can't even accurately describe what our own consciousness is. And we're trying to create a digital version of that. We have no idea. It's probably gonna be a gray ball. It's probably gonna be another ball that's gray mm. colored that has some advantages and some disadvantages. AI is definitely gonna kill, kill people, no doubt about it. It does every day on some battlefield, someplace in the world. Um, will it become outside of our control? The fact that that's a legitimate question should should be concerning to people.
2: Yeah, that's kind of chilling. You know, this conversation is doing great for my mental health today. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, just what you're talking about, about pulling out a gray ball or a black ball or whatever. Uh, another good example, I think, of that is the printing press. You know, there's no doubt that the printing press was this massive advancement in human progress that has changed our lives and has made our lives better it also brought about 300 years of religious war and turmoil
1: great point yeah you know
2: and yeah so if i compare ai to something like that it makes complete sense that that there should be concerns about it how close are we to how close are we to that you know i i kind of AI is kind of always on the fringe of my awareness because I find it interesting. And so I hear scientists say, for sure, within a decade. Or I hear the I hear others say, no, you know, consciousness and human intelligence is so unbelievably complex. It is the current black box of science. We just do not understand it. It will be, um, it, it could be centuries before we figure this out. What's your take on the timeline for AI?
1: Uh, I mean, my, my take is is pretty not optimistic. I, I think that it's going to take a long time. Um, I have uh, just, you know, for fun, I've, I've waltzed into a couple um, AI firms in San Francisco because a lot of times they'll give like public talks um, for self-driving car technology or this sort of thing. And um, it's interesting listening to the engineers like talk about the, the real actual like engineering problems. Mm. And they're still like really rudimentary. It's still like very basic stuff. I just have a hard time imagining, um, any engineering firm going from struggling with just very basic facial recognition type problems to all of a sudden this same technology is, you know, taking over the world. I, for, for me, I think it's going to be a long way out. I I'm really fascinated in, um, some of these firms, uh, I forget what they're called off the top of my head, but um, there are a couple of organizations that are trying to take all um, artificial intelligence technologies and uh, see how they they work together, see how they combine together and piece Mm -hmm. together that that sort of a project there might be some you know eureka thing that happens that all of a sudden all these technologies shoved into one room um and these are kind of like you know like global projects that that people you know work on um there might be some eureka moment that happens and all of a sudden we have some form of like sentience um that probably won't happen though that that would that would have to be like some some really like serendipitous moment mm. i think um if it is just a matter of like incremental progress Engineers struggling, you know, in, with their with their, uh, you know, laptops to overcome these, you know, technical problems. I, I feel like it's just gonna gonna take a really long time.
2: I yeah, I agree with that. You know, when I think about the fact that the human brain has like, oh, like how many eight eight to sixteen billion neurons, something like that, and then you know the untold thousands of neural connections between those neurons which means that there are there are more neurons in the or more neural connections in the human brain than we can like comprehend than i can comprehend um it's it's hard for me to understand how how a system that vast and complex can can be mimicked or recreated in a technological sense does that make sense like Uh, it's it's super hard for me to to kind of grasp the the relationship between human consciousness and and technology because the the complexity is so vast and we still just aren't anywhere near understanding it
1: yeah and and i mean i'm every now and then i i listen to these conversations about like what is what is uh Consciousness. I have, a, I have a my undergrad is in psychology, and so I I you know used to be way way more curious about this than I am now. But I still like kind of pay attention a little bit. Um, some of the people who make the most articulate noises in this this world are the uh, um, the the people who think that consciousness might just be baked into the universe. It might just it might just the be pan like the, yes pan I uh, I had yeah. um
2: I had the author of Galileo's Error. Which was, I think, the first, re- you know, f- written for the the f- written for the public uh, by Philip Goff. He's a philosopher of panpsychism, and uh, I was not stoned enough for that conversation. But <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 super interesting. How does how does the concept of panpsychism relate to um, relate to artificial intelligence?
1: Yeah. So so this this is exactly the question I was going to lay out. Is like. Let's just say it does. The answer for how to create artificial intelligence in that case is going to fundamentally be different than if consciousness is a product of emergence, right? And we just don't know. And the fact that we don't know if consciousness emerges or if it's somehow like baked into the cosmos, we, we don't know that very basic question. So, I mean, how can we recreate consciousness if we don't even know Yeah. Very fundamental thing. To me, that's that's a that's a problem.
2: Unless, like you said, there is this accidental Eureka where we figure it out somehow and it's entirely by accident. Where do you stand on the panpsychism debate? For people who are just completely clueless, if if we've lost you, I'm so sorry. Uh but panpsychism, the idea that consciousness is a fundamental feature of the cosmos, that that consciousness is a is is a feature of of uh, the universe, and but and is not an emergent property of brains following the laws of physics. Where do you fall on that debate?
1: Uh, I really like the idea of that being true, just because I, I like the idea. I mean, a couple of just. You know i'm i'm a fiction writer so i can just have fun with this idea mm-hmm. but uh I, I like some some just kind of aesthetic qualities about the idea that we're stardust about the idea that our bodies are i think it's like 80 uh space like empty space mm-hmm. things things like this the all of these things that are just completely counterintuitive one like a wall is not Hard. It, it actually like it's it's mostly empty space. Think, things like this, I think, are so fascinating, and it tells me that we have zero intuition. Um, I, I don't think our brains are were created by evolution to have intuitions about some of these questions. So. I'm 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 just kind of like fundamentally open to it, Uh, and I like I like the idea that when I'm drinking a beer, that beer is consciousness is 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 partly conscious, you know. Things like that are, are just very fun to think about.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm currently reading Sean Carroll's book Something Deeply Hidden, which is about quantum physics, and that's one of the points that he lays down, which is our intuitions about the world and what we experience is fundamentally wrong in terms of how reality actually is. Like, reality is preposterous. Reality is way weirder and counterintuitive to us. And, yeah, so I I I relate to what you're saying there. And I think I'm with you. Like, I am... I really love the idea of panpsychism. I just don't know. I don't know how we would ever determine whether it's true or not. I would love for it to be. Yeah. I think Philip Goff makes this point that as conscious beings, we feel kind of alienated from an unconscious universe. And there's this sense of not being at home, there's this sense of it of it of the universe being alienating to us uh but that it would yeah. the but it would be if we had a panpsychist society you know if we had a society that that believed in panpsychism we might be we might be much healthier you know in terms of climate change how we treat the environment how we see the world and the universe if 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 we aren't aliens in an unconscious universe then maybe we would treat it much better and i i relate to that there's a sense of alienation in the current model of the universe right
1: yeah 100 percent. i mean i was just gonna gonna throw just another uh goofy detail in here and that we might be in a simulation and it might be we might maybe be the people who built our simulation made it so the panpsychism is true maybe they made it so that it looks like it's true but it's not just like psych uh So that's interesting. That's, that's just another thing that is an an open question that also will determine, um, you know, kind of, kind of everything.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely going to put a disclaimer at the top of this show that everyone should definitely, uh, drop acid or do mushrooms at the start (laughs) so that they can fully, fully appreciate this conversation. (laughs) Um, so in regards to transhumanism, this is kind of a very basic question. Are you good on time, by the way? We've, we've hit about an hour, and we can wrap it up if, if need be. What, how are you Another like 10,
1: 10, 15 minutes probably. I'll have to jump back on work one of these Yeah, for days, sure, but. for
2: sure. This is kind of a very basic question when it comes to transhumanism, but it's one I hear a lot, which is, uh, what's so wrong with death? Or what's so bad about death?
1: uh i i think that this is an individual thing and someone can decide for themselves that this is the race i want to run and i'm not going to fight that um but when you start looking into reasons why you might not want to run just like the the bare minimum race um, you can find a lot of great reasons why you you might want to extend this this game that you're playing, and uh, this is another like Zoltan fan take but I, but I like it. Um, each mind is basically a library of unique information, unique and novel information, and there, there's only there's only one you know one person who has their individual library. Every death is the the burning of Alexandria. Mm. And that's something that one, I think is a, is a good way of looking at humanity and looking at people that we're all valuable in that sense, that we're not just another, another human, that like each person has the library of Alexandria in their, between their ears. And that's, that's a precious thing that we shouldn't let burn. Mm. Um, And two, like, it's actually, it's actually kind of true. Like, I mean, there's, there's, if, if you look at the uh, the cosmos itself, that's infinite, or you know, as far as, we, as far as we can tell, uh, humans take up basically no space in the cosmos, and yet we house, you know, a perspective on the universe that is one hundred percent unique and incredible. Why would you want to let any of those creatures not you know experience something that's even re- not just a breath in the cosmic scale. Why not live for like 200 million years and experience just like, like half a millimeter on the cosmic scale rather, rather than just like a breath. And, uh, we take for granted the idea that, um, I mean, literally everything. in, in terms of time, um, we take for granted that we, we we're lucky to live 65, 70 years. Like, why? That's that's it's completely arbitrary. It's it's a it's a it's a quirk of of uh, you know evolution that we don't live as long as. Uh, some of those, you know, ancient sea creatures that that live for hundreds of years. I mean, turtles live like a Galapagos hundreds of
2: years. turtle, yeah,
1: yeah. Like it's completely arbitrary that they got that DNA and we got ours. I mean, it's not arbitrary. I'm sure you know biologists could tell you why we die mm. when we do, we for you know, raising young purposes or whatever. But uh, if we can change that, I think that I think that there's no reason not to.
2: And as I'm listening to you talk, I just can't help but feel that this is kind of a a religious thing to go back to the start of our conversation that the you know overcoming death that's a very religious exercise and it extends into science it's like this deep human impulse that permeates so much of what we do
1: yeah yeah i mean i i think that um the way that it's not religious is that this is kind of like, this is it. This is your heaven right now. Enjoy, yes. enjoy heaven. Cause this is what, this is what you got. Uh, one thing that I find destructive about a traditional religious worldview is that no, like the game hasn't even started yet. This is a trial run. Mm. Uh, when this is, when this is over, you get to go to heaven and that's when the fun really starts that perspective. I think, I mean, if there were evidence for that, sure, that's a thing, but since that, that is just a fairy tale that people take for, you know believe for some reason um, I think that's just kind of like the, the wrong perspective and if this is not only the trial run but also the real thing um, why why wouldn't you want to you know make it make it last as long as it can this is this is like death is boring some people are fascinated by death it is boring like why not hang on and and see like who wins the next presidential race or you know whatever the thing is or i oh my god the thought of that
2: makes me want to just kill myself now actually that might wanting to know who wins like that should not that should not be your cell that is bad publicity for transhumanism don't don't put that foot forward (laughs) So, when, when Ivanka
1: Trump puts her name on the ballot, um, oh
2: my God,
1: <laughs> we can all kill ourselves happily. <laughs>
2: all right. Well, on that wonderful note, I think this is a uh, great place to end the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been great.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. It was, it was a great time. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah. You're welcome back anytime. This has been fun.
1: Excellent. Thank you.
2: Uh, all right. For people who want to find your work or learn more about you, where can they do that?
1: Uh, I do have a website, petermclark.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at HeyPeterClark, and that's Clark with an E, C-L-A-R-K-E. Um, and also, uh, I am kind of still promoting uh, my my book, The Singularity Survival Guide, and you can pick that up on Amazon, Um, so yeah, any, any of those
2: places. Great. I'll post a link to all of that, including the book in the show notes. So everyone go check that out. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by the Jelly Rocks and 11d7. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan. And thanks for listening
0: Take a rest, find a safe space. i am know in a catalog when you meditate Got me second at this in that I am not take I took a slip Fell into the world self-made a I just want the fame for the fame's sake Here I go again Stoppin' I don't know still my name's sake I know I am just what I am, but can I get my therapist to see me more than just a six-year-old young girl grandma? You're the one calling out of the hellmouth, making sounds coming straight from the meltdown turning all my god sins into hell Oh, 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 I'ma back to the Halloween time. I expend a lot of energy hiding all these crises behind my eyes. That's why I'm traveling back in time.